Welcome to Studies in the Scriptures with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, a broadcast ministry of Return to the Word and made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. This is our third and final study on principles of Bible interpretation, but these are part of a larger series that we will work our way through on doctrine. Now remember, God has given us both the mandate and the means to understand the truth of Scripture. It is up to each one of us to take the time to consider the truth of the Word of God. It is impossible to grow in your faith without taking the time to study the Word of God. Our theme verse up until this point has been 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, which reads, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is the mandate to be diligent in our studies. Now, the first principle we looked at was that there are three basic steps to Bible study. You observe the text answering the question of what do I see? Then you interpret the text answering the question, what does it mean? Third, you apply the text. You apply what you've learned answering the question, what does it mean to me in my life? Then we talked about the goal of biblical interpretation is to understand the meaning of the text as it was originally, very important, originally intended. What did the writer mean when the words were written to the original audience? Third, we interpret the Bible literally, taking words, phrases, and sentences in their usual, normal, natural, ordinary sense. This is what we mean by a literal interpretation of the scriptures. The Bible was designed to be understood without allegorizing, without spiritualizing, and trying to come up with some secret meaning. Our fourth point was to interpret each verse or passage of scripture in its context, noting who wrote it. Was the passage written by an apostle or an Old Testament prophet? Who is speaking in the context? To whom was it written? To church-age believers? To Israel? Where is it located in the Bible? Is it historical, poetic, prophetic, gospels, or epistles? When was it written? We always have to be mindful of the context. The cults are built around verses taken out of their context. But even after making observations, sometimes you'll find that a given passage may still be hard to understand, which brings us to our fifth principle. Interpret a verse by comparing it with other parts of Scripture to arrive at a correct biblical understanding. You not only observe by looking at content and context in order to interpret and apply, but you should compare Scripture with Scripture. The Bible is the best interpreter of itself. This takes us to our study for today. We have five more principles to cover. Sometimes you may hear the comment that the Bible is full of contradictions, but this brings us to our sixth principle. Remember that the Bible correctly understood will never contradict itself. The more you study the Bible, the more you're going to be convinced of this. Any apparent contradiction is simply a problem in our understanding, not in the Bible itself. We must not have the attitude that because a passage does not make sense that something is wrong with the Bible. If we are humble and we recognize the divine authority and sufficiency of Scripture, we can come to a proper understanding from God's Word. 
A great example is found in the book of James. If you talk to people about the gospel message, the message of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting not on your own works, but the work of Christ on your behalf when he died on the cross to pay for your sins, if you witness enough, you will eventually hear someone say, but doesn't the Bible say somewhere that faith without works is dead? Most people have heard those words before. Let's look at this apparent contradiction. In James 2, we'll start in verse 14. It says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Some will say that this passage is teaching that you must have faith plus good works in order to be saved. This is the teaching of many denominations. Others will say that it means that while faith is all you need for salvation, you will have good works if you are truly saved. They will say that if you don't have works, it means that you are never saved in the first place, that if you truly have faith, it will persevere and show itself in ongoing fruit or good works in your life. Ephesians 2.10 says we should, keyword, should have good works, but that is different than saying you must have good works in order to show you were saved. Because then it becomes just a roundabout way of saying that in order to ultimately go to heaven, you must have good works. Now, when people say this, they don't make it a condition to be saved, but they make good works a requirement to prove your salvation. And there are still others who teach that if you do not have good works, you will lose your salvation. Let's begin by making some simple observations in James 2. Who's writing? Well, chapter 1, verse 1 teaches us James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom is he writing? By my account, I find the term brethren used 15 times in this book, used in every single chapter, meaning that James was not questioning their faith for salvation. He referred to them as believers. What precedes this passage? Instructions and warnings to believers. In chapter 1, verse 12, it was instructions about trials and temptations. In chapter 1, verse 19, in chapter 2, verse 1, it was warnings to believers about showing partiality. What follows after our text? More instructions and warnings to believers. Chapter 3, verse 1 is about taming the tongue. Chapter 4, verse 1 is about judging others. Chapter 5, verse 9 is a warning about grumbling against one another. And if we look closer at the context of chapter 2, we can make several more observations. Verse 14, my brethren, James is addressing believers in Jesus Christ. Both verse 14 and verse 16 use the expression, what does it profit? Meaning, what does it benefit you or someone else? Notice in verse 14, we have the expression, can faith save him? We tend to see the word save and only think that this refers to our eternal salvation. Here in verse 14, it is in the present tense. The point is, never, not once, 
In James, does the word save refer to salvation from hell? It always refers to salvation from sin's damage in a believer's life. In verses 17 and 20, faith by itself is dead, and faith without works is dead. Dead or death in the Bible means separation. You put all this together and we can make some solid conclusions about this passage. James is testifying faith without works is separated from profiting you or other people. It'd be another way of saying faith without works is useless. It doesn't profit anyone. And that is exactly the point of verses 15 and 16. This is an illustration of his point that if you have a physical need, if you need food or clothing, and I do nothing to meet your needs, but just say to you, the Lord be with you. What good does my faith do to meet your needs? Nothing. My faith is of no benefit to you. Faith without works does not profit or benefit anyone else. That type of faith is useless to other people. For all practical purposes, that type of faith is dead. James uses two illustrations to make his point. James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Abraham demonstrated faith when he offered Isaac on the altar. This was in Genesis 22. Then verse 22 of James, Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? The key words in this verse are, do you see? James is talking about what others can see about your faith. This is important to understand. The Bible speaks of being justified before God, but it also speaks of being justified before men. The point here is that Abraham was justified in the eyes of men, not God, when he offered Isaac. He had already, according to Scripture, been declared righteous by God years before. Verse 23 in James, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. This is a quote of Genesis 15, 6. Abraham was justified before God when he believed God. Abraham was already saved by faith. But verse 22 tells us that by works, faith was made perfect. And the correct understanding of this is that James is addressing the outcome of exercising faith in doing good works is that our faith is made perfect or mature. Take a look at verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The real question to the answer here is justified before whom? Does God need to see your works in order to know if you have faith? No. Can people see your faith apart from some demonstration by your words or works? No. James is talking about justification before men. He is talking about a practical expression or outworking of faith by a believer who has already been declared righteous before God. It is an expression of faith that results in works that are profitable to others and demonstrated before men. This is where the cross-referencing comes in. Let's head to Romans 4. Compare it back to what we've been reading in James. Romans 4, starting with verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Paul uses Abraham as an illustration of how someone is justified before God by faith alone. But notice the key words in verse two, not before God. You see, Paul is talking here about being justified before God, to be declared righteous before God. All you need is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is salvation from sin's penalty. James is talking about salvation from sin's power, and he is addressing those who are already justified before God. God wants you to have an ongoing faith that results in works that are a benefit to other people. As a believer, you're already justified before God. But if your faith produces good works in the lives of others, then you will be justified before them, meaning your good works provide living proof and evidence before men of your redemption and the power of God at work in your life. And the point of all this is that if you do not compare Scripture with Scripture, you could easily come to James 2 with a wrong interpretation which is what most people do. The Bible correctly understood does not contradict itself. Paul and James are not in disagreement. Those passages harmonize when you compare them. If you see an apparent contradiction, it means, Christian, you need to dig a little deeper. Remember, our goal is exegesis, which means drawing the meaning out of Scripture instead of eisegesis, which means putting our own meaning into Scripture. X means out of. You derive your understanding by taking it out of the Bible. Ice means into. You impose your own ideas, belief system, or meaning into the Bible to try to make it fit what you want it to say. Our next principle deals with the problem of what to do with unclear passages. Principle number seven, interpret an unclear passage by examining it in view of a clear passage. Let's look at an example in the book of Acts. Follow along as I read Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This verse appears, notice I use the word appears, to give two conditions for forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. So you have to ask yourself the question, is the Bible teaching that you must be baptized in order to be saved? If you ever talk to someone from the Church of Christ, they use Acts 2.38 to teach this. The context is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out to the believers, and the manifestation is speaking in tongues. This draws a crowd and allows Peter to declare to this Jewish audience that they had crucified their Messiah but God had raised him from the dead. Take a look at the verses that come right before this, starting with verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were already convicted, and they didn't know what to do. They had crucified their Messiah, and God raised him from the dead. What should they do now? The Word of God states repeatedly that salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, and his finished work on the cross, and not by works. Baptism is something we do, therefore it is a work. 
Is this verse adding a work to the gospel message of grace? Hardly. Again, we start with some observations. Repent means to change your mind. Peter's message to his audience is that they crucified their Messiah. Now they needed to change their minds about Jesus Christ. They had rejected him as their Messiah. Now they needed to receive him as God's promised Redeemer, their Savior. The verb used is plural, meaning all of you must change your minds. It's also an imperative. This is a command, meaning this is God's will for them. Be baptized. This is in the singular, not in the plural. The command to repent was addressed to all. The command to be baptized was more individualized. Those of you who have changed your mind about Christ as individuals, you need to be baptized. Baptism is a public proclamation of a spiritual reality. It is a public demonstration of one's faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, they are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. You attach Jesus to it and you're saying you believe Jesus is the Messiah. The word in, in the phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Greek means literally resting upon. This word is used in Acts 16.31, believe in or resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read it again with the words resting upon in the text instead of in. Repent and let every one of you be baptized resting upon the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is still an unclear passage, even after making some observations. So we look for a similar passage that addresses the same issue that is clear and compare the two. This brings us to Acts 10, where we have the account of a God-fearing Gentile, a Roman centurion who attended the services at the synagogue. His name was Cornelius. God directed Cornelius to Peter, and Peter had an opportunity to explain Jesus Christ to him. Acts 10, starting with verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In both passages, we find Peter speaking about receiving the forgiveness of sins. In Acts 2, 238, he uses the word repent. Here he uses the word believe in verse 43. Is there any mention of baptism in verse 43? No. Believing in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, is the only condition given in order to receive the remission of sins. So we can safely conclude that baptism is not a condition for salvation. Peter also mentions in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit is received along with the forgiveness of sins. Comparing Acts 10, we see in verse 44 that the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. The implication is they must have believed. Had they been baptized yet? No, not until after they had received the Holy Spirit in verse 48. In Acts 10, 
There is a sequence given that is important to recognize. They heard, they believed, they were forgiven, they received the Holy Spirit, then they were baptized. If baptism is a requirement of salvation, then you have unsaved people receiving the Holy Spirit, which means here they were obviously saved before they were baptized. Baptism was a result of salvation, not a requirement. It was a means of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ and testifying of one's salvation. The point of this exercise is to show that while Acts 2.38 may be a little bit of an unclear passage, in light of Acts 10, it can be explained this way. Peter was making two statements regarding repenting in Acts 2.38. First, he urges the crowd to repent, to change their mind about the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, to rest upon the name of Jesus Christ, resting upon him for salvation, and to follow their faith by publicly proclaiming it with baptism. Second, he is telling them that one of the results of repenting of the sin of rejecting Christ is that they will receive the Holy Spirit, which is in complete agreement with Acts 10. This leads us to principle number eight. Each scripture text or passage has only one meaning or interpretation, but may have several applications. Turn over to James chapter one. We'll pick it up with verse two. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, this was written to believers who were facing trials. This was about checking their attitude. They were to count it all joy, knowing that God uses trials to test their faith, produce patience, and mature them. This is the interpretation, which is simple. There is one interpretation and only one interpretation, but there are many applications. Can we think of some applications here? Well, trials will happen in your life, and God does not want you to run from them. God wants to bring you through the trial. You can go through a trial with a positive attitude, counting it all joy, knowing that God is using the trial to test your faith, produce patience in you, and mature you as a believer. This could apply to pastors who are struggling in their ministry, parents who are seeking to raise their children to honor the Lord, and maybe they're going through trials. This could apply to teenagers who desire to serve the Lord but experience peer pressure, kids with fears or frustrations, or just any believer who is being persecuted for their faith. The applications are unlimited, but they are based on a correct interpretation. God wants us to rejoice in our trials because God has a purpose in these trials, and knowing his purpose can help us to rejoice in them. I hope you can see the problems we would face if the Bible had multiple interpretations. I hope you can see the value of God allowing for multiple applications of Scripture. Your life, your trials are different from mine and and are different from each other's. And yet God's Word has a practical application for us all. Our ninth principle is recognize that while all Scripture is for us, not all Scripture is written directly to us as church-age believers. Now, What do we mean by all scripture is for us? Is the Old Testament for us? Well, let's listen to Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. 
Meaning that, yes, we can learn many important truths from the Old Testament. We can benefit from learning the full counsel of God's word. It should remind us of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is for us. Not all scripture is directly written to us as church-age believers. In Genesis, we read that God told Noah to build an ark and Noah obeyed the Lord. Is it God's will for us to build a big ark? No, God's instructions were for Noah, but we can learn from this passage of scripture. It is for us, but not to us. The Old Testament saints were told to stone a rebellious son. Is this God's direct instructions to us today? It was written for our learning, but not written directly to us. The same is true with God's prohibition to Adam not to eat the forbidden fruit. These are passages from which we can learn, but they are not passages with direct instruction to us. And here is the principle. We must learn to differentiate between temporal principles that were only for a time and permanent principles for all time. As you learn to make better observations, you'll be able to distinguish what is written for us and what is written directly to us. And now we come to our 10th principle of Bible interpretation, which answers the question, why should I care if I interpret the Bible correctly? Realize that the ultimate purpose of interpreting Scripture is to cause you to personally know and grow in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. If you observe, interpret, and apply the text of Scripture, and it does not cause you to grow, then you've missed the whole purpose and point of Bible study. Consider just a few passages where the Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke directly about the scriptures. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And in John 5, 39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. See, the Bible is not about you. It's not about me. The Bible is about God. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to get to know him personally and to grow in grace and in our knowledge of him. So how does all this apply to you? God wants you to become an accurate student of God's word, not only to rightly divide the word of truth, but you should be able to share what you've learned with others. Learn how to study the scriptures. Let the grace of God and the spirit of God change your life and let the principles of interpretation help you discover God's intended meaning of his word. You can't share the word of God with others until you have first learned it yourself. So become a student of God's word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.